Before there can be a fresh move of God on any corporate level, there must be a fresh move of God in the hearts of individual believers. Imagine with me for a moment, some of you were here last week when I had you start. My mic seems a little bit hot, so uh, I know you guys may like it that way, but it's distracting me. So um, imagine with me for a moment, if I were to ask you to pull out a piece of paper like I did last week, only today I would have you start making a list of your sins. Kind of an interesting start for the message. I just think for a moment, if we were going to do that exercise, which, by the way, relax, we're not going to, but if we were going to do that exercise, how much time would you need? (laughs) And that was my next question, Fred. How many sheets of paper would you need? Uh, Would one piece of paper be enough? Now imagine with me a slightly different picture. If God were to come to you, I'll use me, if God were to come to me and say, Steve, I've done a deep dive into your life, making a list of all your sins, it would be about as quiet as it is right now. And then he were to say, Steve, I only came up with two. Now, for me, I would count that a big win. I would just say, now, we're sure we're Steve Schaefe with this Social Security and this date of birth. We're we're talking the same Steve Schaefe, right? And he says, yep, I've only got two. Now, initially, my gut instinct would be, that's a really good day. At one point, God chose to use the prophet Jeremiah to call out the people of Israel for their sin. And it was a really short list. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. As we wrestle with what it would take for there to be a fresh move of God in our own individual hearts, I invite you to think for a bit about how Jeremiah's short list of sins might apply to your life. The first part of that was, they have forsaken me the spring of living water. Now again, you've been around a while, you've heard me reference definitions. And so I went, and and again, I used to say I went to the dictionary, but I googled it just like everybody else. But anyway, forsake speaks of withdrawing from, abandon, give up, renounce, or relinquish. Now what it might, what might it look like for us to forsake God? And I think it's important to note in the context that this is being written or being said originally to the Israelites, for the Israelites, just like, dare I say, for most of us, it is usually a very subtle process more of a gradual drift than it is outright thumbing your nose at God and saying, that's it. We typically don't jump off the cliff of rejecting him, especially once we have been in relationship with him, but rather there is a temptation, an inclination, if you will, to wander down a simple path going in an ever-increasing different direction. 
It's not, we're walking and all of a sudden we go this way. It's, we're walking and we just begin to separate just bit by bit by bit. I want to talk briefly about four subtle areas of potential drift from the spring of living water. And I think this was true for the Israelites, and I think it can be true for us. The first is to forsake his presence. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says, as he's preparing to leave the disciples and ascend to heaven, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, what's always significant, and you've probably heard others make reference to it or heard me make reference to it, is that said in the present tense. Not, I will be with you always. I am with you always. God is always with us, present tense. And if I'm not in tune to that, it's not because he has changed. It's because I have on some level drifted, dare I say, forsaken his presence. Matthew 18, verse 20 says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Again, present tense. Not I will be, I am there. Whenever two or three gather in his name, if I begin to sense or begin to realize I'm not sensing God's presence, once again, it's not because he's moved. It's because perhaps I need to be together with one or two others at least and gather in his name and savor his presence. Psalm 23, 4, we've heard it at funerals, we've heard it a gazillion times. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Present tense, you are with me. Not you will be with me, not you were with me, you are with me. So the question is, how does that work its way into our daily lives? Do I live my life as if those verses were unequivocally true all the time? Do I go through my daily life with a keen sense that God is always with me in every very moment. And I can tell you, there are times that I'm oblivious to that. Not necessarily maliciously, but just that subtle drift of realizing, or acknowledging now, that on some level, I, I am forsaking his presence because I lose sight of that presence. What does my prayer life suggest about how I view his presence? Now, some of you know, some of you who know us have may have noticed that Diana and I are different. Okay. Not to mention, you know, the hundred pounds more that I carry around that she doesn't, but, but we're different. She, excuse me, I'll start with me. I'm an internal processor, all right? I'm going to think before I say anything. And I'm going to think a lot. And sometimes I may never say anything, but I'm still thinking about it. Diana is an external processor. She, if she's thinking it, she's saying it. Now, that can be a good thing, and sometimes it might get us in a little bit of trouble. But that seeps over into a relationship with God. I cannot tell you how many times she's having a conversation with someone in our house and it's not me. And I thought we were the only two there. 
because she is just always having a conversation with God, sometimes in her head and heart. Sometimes she's just talking. It's like, who are you talking to? Because some people think I have a hearing problem. And so it's like, are you talking to me? Or are you talking just to talk? Or are you talking to God? Now, I'm not saying she's more keenly aware of his presence than I am. But I'm saying she's more keenly aware of his presence than I am. <laughs> think about forsaking his presence. What does my experience with corporate and personal worship suggest about how I view his presence? If I am attuned to his presence all the time, then again, it would suggest to me that personal worship takes on a different level of frequency. And the same way with corporate worship. As I've said repeatedly, do I live each day as if I were keenly aware of his presence at all times? Now, I suspect for most of us, we get distracted by stuff. And God gets that. But at the same time, if I want my heart to be stirred to a new level of spiritual fervor, then one of the places for that to start is to become more intentional about cultivating an awareness of his presence in some way, shape, or form, just reminding me. And again, some of these are crazy simple stuff. Write yourself a note. Get a tattoo. I don't know. Whatever you need to do to remind yourself that he is always present. Forsake his presence is one of the ways we can drift. Forsake his people. Now, I don't want to shock you, and, and I, I don't want to mess with your perception of reality, but has anyone else ever noticed that relationships can be messy? I mean, sometimes getting along with other people it's just not easy. And for me, not you, but for me, the temptation to forsake people is always very real. My daughters and most people who know me well and know the nature of my relationship with Diana, they say, if anything ever happens to Diana, we will not let you become a hermit. <laughs> because they know if something happened to Diana, I would become a hermit. And I would be happy with that. Just letting you know. Not if something happened to her. But if I had the opportunity to be a hermit because she wasn't there. That's why, as we did the checklist last week, there were some of those proud, broken moments that really hit an exposed nerve for me as they related to other people. Forsake his people. Do I spend time with the people of God? Do I invest in the lives of other believers? Do I serve? Do I invest my time, talent, and treasure to build up the body? And because relationships can be messy, relationships in church can be messy. Relationships with other believers can be messy. And there can be a temptation to drift from God by forsaking his people because it can be messy. 
in his one of his letters, the Apostle John addressed this because I think he knew that relationships were messy and God wanted to speak to that. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Now, again, sometimes I'd like to have a conversation with God and say, but have you met so-and-so? I mean, really? I, I don't see any qualifiers there. As he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Remember, this is Jeremiah being given a message from God for the people of Israel, saying, you've forsaken the spring of living water. And he knew they were not getting along. And one of the reasons they were drifting spiritually is because they were forsaking the relationships with one another. And then I will apologize for this in just a moment. So forsake his presence, forsake his people, and forsake his palace. And I just want to say that was a shameless stretch so I could have alliteration in my outline. I needed a P word, and I palace was the best one I could get. It's really talking about the temple. The Israelites were increasingly abandoning the practices of worship that God had outlined for them, which was in turn contributing to their spiritual and moral decline. As they forsake, forsook the practices of worship that God had outlined for them, they began to drift further and further and further from God. Not outright saying, God, we forsake you and all you stand for, but we are forsaking the practices with which we use to connect with you. Therefore, the drift and the end result ended up being the same. Now, part of that is, and this is not just the preacher whining about attendance, but just part of it is just flat not coming together. They were neglecting the practices of worship that God had outlined for them. And just just think, what if your closest friends, those relationships where you have invested the most, where you care deeply, were as faithful in coming to your home when invited as we are in coming to his house when we're invited? If somebody said, you know, Steve, you know, you're my best friend, I love you, uh, just, I don't know where I'd be without you, I'd say, that's great, come over for dinner. Well, not this week. Well, how about next week? Well, not next week. Well, how about two weeks from next month? No, no, that, that won't work either. Now, eventually, I begin to question how much they value the relationship. I might feel forsaken if every time I have a need, they're not there. Every time I invite them to come close, they have a reason for not coming close. Now, again, most of you who know me well know I'm not one who says you have to be in church every time the doors are open. But I am one to say the more we neglect coming together, the greater the risk for us to drift further and further from where God would have us be. The other part of forsaking his palace is coming for the wrong reason. 
Once again, what if every time your friends come to your house, it was clear that they're doing it out of a sense of obligation? Oh, gosh. Really? Now, I'm not saying there aren't times you do it out of a sense of obligation. Sometimes God has a plan. We had some friends when Diana and I were engaged to be married. And we Diana met them because she worked with them. Some of you heard the story. Diana met them because she worked with the gal. The guy liked some of the same stuff I do. They were just a touch ahead of us. Just really, we just wanted to hang out with them. The problem was every time we hung out with them, they kept inviting us to church. And we really weren't wanting to go to church. I mean, just because. And finally we said, you know what? We're afraid they'll stop wanting to be our friends if we don't go to church with them. We went out of a sense of obligation. Little did we know that was the bait on the hook that God had to hook us in. All right? (laughs) Praise God for that. Um, But what if when your friends come over, it's just like... Oh, we're here. What do you want from us? Or if when they come, they're distracted, and it's obvious that they wish there were somewhere they were somewhere else. My watch is broken because it feels like I've been here for ten hours and it's only been fifteen minutes. You know, again, are there? I know this is me, Grumpy Pastor Steve Rant, but you've got friends over for dinner and they're on their phone. Really? I thought this was for us. Are we coming to connect with God in a way that is transformational and reflects his worth in our lives? When you got up and came to church today, what drove it? Was it an exciting opportunity to come and allow God to speak into your life? Was it an opportunity for you to come and say, God, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm just glad you're helping me. I I just want to show that to you. Or was it, "Ah, it's Sunday, I don't have anywhere else I have to be, it's not raining and it's not snowing, and I guess I might as well go to church. (laughs) Or I told so-and-so I'd meet him, so I guess I better go. I, I... Sometimes, if we're coming with the wrong attitude, we're here, but we're still forsaking the reason that we come. Then the other thing is forsake his principles. And I have to start with the question, do I even know what his principles are? Do I even know what God wants from me? And just a newsflash, he did give us a rather lengthy instruction manual that makes it pretty clear what he wants from us, what he desires from us, what he has for us. And I just, again, I I keep going back to this, but as I think about forsaking or leaning into and embracing something, What if your friends treated your text messages, your Facebook messenger messages, your calls, maybe the olden days, a letter or an email, what if they treated those things, those communications from you the way you treat his communication to you? Would you feel valued and treasured by them 
or would you feel forsaken by them? Because, geez, oh, Pete, I sent you a message. You know, again, if you're like me, if I send a text and it's been two minutes, I'm thinking my phone's broken. You know, I'm thinking they don't love me anymore because they're not answering my text. Terribly insecure, I'm just saying. Uh, but, but just think about how many times God reaches out to us. And we say, well, yeah, 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 I'll get to that. I, I'll get to that. Oh, yeah, I, I know he loves me, but I've, I've got other stuff right now. John, in his gospel, put it this way. Or Jesus, he's, he quotes Jesus in saying this in John fourteen fifteen and 21. If you love me, keep my commands. Can it be much simpler than that, folks? If you love me, keep my commands. And then in 21, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. A lack of obedience, while we may not see it that way, a lack of willingness to embrace what God calls us to be and do is a very clear thumbing our nose at him and forsaking him while we think we don't. So the first part was, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And the second part is, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Can I simply say, if you struggle with that, you're in good company. The inclination to replace God with cisterns of our own choosing runs deep in most of us. And goes all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, when the serpent was test tempting Eve, he said, for God knows when you eat of it, in terms of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, if you will, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be able to create your own cisterns that are better than what God provides. Since the tendency to place our trust in things other than the spring of living water comes so naturally to us, I'm just going to quickly jog your memory by running through some of the potential broken cisterns in our lives with minimal commentary. Many of us are tempted to forsake the spring of living water and exchange it with a reliance upon self. I got this. For many of us, perhaps not you, but for many of us, God is like our lifeline, all right? Our phone a friend. I'll answer all the questions in life I can, and when I finally get stumped, then I'll call a friend and say, God, how about you help me on this one? He doesn't want to be phone a friend. He wants to be our ever-present help. In every situation, he wants to be our first response, not our last resort. And again, the temptation for many of us to rely on self can be overwhelming and is very, very natural. Another cistern that we can rely on that is broken is money and stuff. Again, you can have a truckload of money. But if you're facing a personal crisis that money can't fix... 
it's worthless to you. Knowledge. I'm not saying knowledge is a bad thing, but increasingly, I realize the more I learn, the less I know. And the more trouble I have finding the answers to the stuff that matters most outside of God as a resource. Government and politics. I've said repeatedly, I love our country. I have strong political views. But I also want to regularly acknowledge that the United States is not my savior. No elected official is my savior. No particular political persuasion is my savior. Newsflash, Steve. There are people all over the world that don't vote the way you vote, that don't live in the country that I live in, that are loved by Jesus and will spend eternity with him. And again, that's not to say I don't love our country and I don't want to see our country prosper, but it is to say it's not it. He is it. Religion. Now, understand, religion speaks of a set of practices and behaviors. Our religion does not save us. Jesus saves us. A real, personal, life-changing love relationship with the God of the universe who sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what saves us. Now, I'm faithful to our denomination, but the Wesleyan Church does not save me. And it does not save you. Nor does the Baptist Church or any other church I could list. It's him. And if I forsake him for the sake of something that is simply religious behavior... I'm going to miss out. Technology. I mean, I love technology some days. Some days not so much. But at the end, I realize it's just a broken cistern. Apparently, we don't have electricity at home this morning, which means there's a pretty good chance we might not have electricity here, but fortunately we still do have electricity here. I keep waiting. But you know what? Technology on any level, it's just a resource. It's not the end all. And then the other place where the broken cistern where many of us can get lost is other people. There are people like my wife whom I love deeply and I am incredibly dependent upon her. If you ever come on Sunday morning and think I'm dressed nice, it's Diana's fault. All right? She picks out my clothes. I, I, I pick out my underwear, but she gets to pick the rest of it. You know, I, I, I am incredibly dependent upon her. Did somebody just say too much information? I thought I heard that. But anyway. But... There are people that I love and care for deeply and that I'm incredibly dependent upon. But as much as I value them, compared to God, they're still a broken cistern. 
Probably not as broken as I am, but they're still a broken cistern. And if I elevate them to the place that God is supposed to fill, it is a guarantee I'm going to be disappointed. Not because they're inadequate, but because that's not their role. Please understand, those things like self, money, stuff, knowledge, government, politics, religion, technology, other people, relationships, those are all valuable. They're incredibly important, but they are intended to be a supplement to God, not a replacement of Him. The further we drift from God, the more we rely on those other broken cisterns of our own making, and the greater our need for a revived heart. A couple of couple more passages. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. This is a message to the church. This particular is the church at Ephesus. And it starts out, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate that you have tested those, excuse me, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now again, just imagine with me for a moment that you're having a, a one-on-one dialogue with God and he comes to you and he says, Steve, you're, you're crushing it. I, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I'm getting puffed up. He says, I, I know you can not tolerate wicked people. Oh yeah, that's right, God. I don't know. No, no use for those wicked folks. I know that you've tested the, those who claim to be prophets but are not and have found them false. Good job, Steve. It's like, yeah. I know that you've persevered and have endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. God gets it. Look at me. And then he says, yet I hold this against you. Uh-oh, the other shoe. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Oh, I'm doing all the right stuff. But I've forsaken the love that is the reason I do the right stuff. Matthew 28, excuse me, Matthew 22, 36 through 38. Again, you've heard it before. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is harsh, but I think it's true. Anything less than that has me on that path of forsaking and drifting. So our goal is to always strive to increasingly be leaning into that love with all of our heart, mind, and soul. As I said earlier, if you're taking time to listen to this message, I doubt that you were at a place of thumbing your nose at God. I mean, those of you that are gathered here, you got out of bed and you came here today, got in your car, drove here, maybe somebody was dragging you, maybe you knew Stephen was going to make donuts for some of us, I don't know. But you got here. So I don't think we're at a place of thumbing our nose at God and forsaking all that he is and all that he represents. However, I suspect that all of us need to be reminded from time to time to resist the subtle drift that can seep into our lives. And that is my simple prayer for us today. I just want to close by reflecting on a scene from John chapter 6. And again, it's one I've addressed before. 
In John chapter 6, Jesus' earthly ministry is, is really gaining some momentum. He's just doing some crazy stuff. And there is a buzz surrounding him. He's just crushing it. And people are flocking to him. And then in the midst of this fever pitch of spiritual excitement, Jesus issued a challenge. And he called out those who were following him and challenged them to take their commitment to an entirely different level. I mean, he was skipping a couple levels. He's saying, you know what? All this excitement is great, but I want you to go all in. And some folks just weren't ready for that. And in John chapter 6, starting with verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. This isn't fun anymore. You you really want me to be fully committed? Um, uh, I'm not ready to sign up for that. And then Jesus looked at the twelve and he asked the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? In other words, he's saying to the twelve, are you in or are you out? And Simon Peter answered him. I, I, anybody else love Peter? I mean, he just blurts it out. Sometimes he gets it right. Sometimes he kind of... What, Peter? Have you been listening to anything I've said? This time he got it right. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. (laughs) Friends, we're here because on some level we think Jesus is the answer. That God is the spring of living water that's going to make sense of all the nonsense around us that's going to make something of the mess within us that nobody else can do. Lord, to whom shall we go? If he really is the answer, then it seems to me we would want to consistently do our part to stem the drift and not be content to forsake him a little because we're not forsaking him a lot, but instead to regularly think, how can I steer this ship back on the path? What do I have to do to stay in touch? And that, to me, is where a personal, revived heart that is intentionally, consistently saying, I want to go all in. Please pray with me as the worship team makes their way up. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the hope and the promise that you provide. We thank you that you desire a relationship with us, that you are patient with our drift, and you lovingly will correct it. And Father, as we're about to sing, we pray that the at the end of each day, 
we would seek to walk completely in all that you have for us and that you would help us to resist any temptation, any inclination to forsake you in even the smallest of ways. That we would prioritize your presence. That we would embrace your people. That we would be drawn to your palace for the right reasons. And that we would consistently say, Lord, help me to live daily according to your principles. And Father, help me to regularly seek to understand and apply them. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.